This is Authors in Focus. Welcome back to the Authors in Focus podcast. We've got a really special guest today that I'm really uh, excited to be interviewing because he's one of my favorite authors. We have uh, Michael R. Fletcher, author of the Manifest Illusion series, the City of Sacrifice series, Obsidian Path, Ghost of Tomorrow, the Millennial Manifesto, and the word is still out on Paternus. How you doing, Mike? I'm good. Uh, thanks for having me on. Uh, how you doing? Oh, it's cool. Yeah, I mean... Just to, to set the, uh, set the stage here, this is the first time Mike and I were both, I don't, I'm not sure how much you're still doing in that, but we were both from Toronto and we both started off heavily in the music industry. I knew Mike as the, uh, booker for a club downtown and I was a, uh, fledgling event promoter working in Toronto and I would call up Mike, who I knew exclusively as Fletch at the time and be like, dude, can I get a weekend for my bands? And, he would be like, man, no, I only do Thursdays. We do dance on the weekends. And I would always kind of beg him for weekends because any other day of the week, as anyone in the concert promotion business knows, kind of sucks. And somehow I knew about your books a while because everybody in the Grimdark community was praising them and talking about them. And I had no idea that you were the same you. And I still don't remember how I actually found that out. But it's really cool that I'm talking to you from a very different perspective right now. So welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks. It's a it's a strange and small world. Oh, it totally is. It totally is. So I like to start off before we get into the writing stuff with a couple of fun questions just to kick it off. So I'm going to start off with this one. I ask everybody this question. If you could have a drink with any author, living or dead, who would it be and why? Uh, I would love to sit down, chain smoke and drink whiskeys with Mick Farron. Uh, he was sort of a pulp science fiction uh, writer back in the like late 70s into the 80s uh wrote a pile of very cool books that no one has read and was uh seems like a really interesting dude cool yeah i've never even uh, i've never heard of him so i have to check him out for me it would probably be uh i don't know probably james joyce uh, i've heard a lot of cool stories about him and i love uh you can't get too weird and abstract for me i enjoy um you know david foster wallace's stuff and Alan Moore's stuff. I'm a big British Invasion grimdark comic book fan, and Joyce was kind of the pioneer of doing kind of metatextual weird shit like that. So for me, and I don't think I'll ever get that opportunity, it would be James Joyce. Uh, another question, this one more geared directly towards you, is where is the best place to find grilled cheese? I should say anyone can make grilled cheese, but I know that in Toronto, especially us music industry people, grilled cheese is a thing. What's the best purveyor of grilled cheese that you've ever been able to uh, you know, frequent? It has been so long since I was actually out, uh, especially downtown. Like uh, the club scene that I knew, it, it doesn't even exist anymore. You know, Queen Street is dead. These days, frankly, the best grilled cheese sandwich is, uh, is downstairs in the kitchen. It's, it's the one that I'm making. Awesome. Usually for yeah. my kids. <laughs> because I don't get to eat them anymore. <laughs> yeah, no, I know. It's um, when you hit 40-ish, everything changes. Oh, fuck yes. So uh, let's start off at the beginning, because this is something I've, I don't think I've ever asked you in any, any form 
when we talked and I really want to know. So how long have you been writing? Like with the intention, I guess, of making writing an actual thing for you and what kind of started it off and led to the publication of your first book, which I'm thinking is, is Ghosts of Tomorrow. Am I right about that? Yeah, that's correct. It was a uh, first released by a small Canadian press as 88. And then later I got the rights back and republished it. So, I mean, for me, I guess the writing starts somewhere back in the, uh, the early nineties, uh, mostly came out of role playing. Uh, I was always the, uh, the GM, always making campaigns and writing fantasy novels was sort of like the obvious next step. Uh, I tried that. I tried to write Blackstone Heart, which is now the first book in the Obsidian Path series back in, I think, 94. Uh, and it was really difficult. It turned out writing books was actually hard and required effort. So I gave up. Jump ahead a few years, 2008, I decided I am going to finish a book, and it took me two years to write it, and then two more years to get it published, and after that, it was pretty much all downhill. Okay, so, so was Beyond Redemption, was that the first book that you officially got published by a traditional publisher? Uh, yeah, by, by a, certainly by a publisher of any size. 88 was my very first book. Beyond Redemption was the second book that I actually finished writing. And that landed with Harper Voyager and came out in 2015. Cool. For me, one of the, one of the things that drew me to, um, to Beyond Redemption was all the lists that it was on. Cause I remember back around that time, right when I started discovering that, uh, you know, fantasy and, and sci-fi and, and subgenres had a, a life outside of, you know, George R. R. Martin and Brandon Sanderson and, and, and Tolkien and, you know, what you could immediately find going into a, a bookstore like our, our chapters here, or Barnes and Noble in the U.S. And I was I was looking at all these lists and what caught my eye. And this is, again, before I knew who you were, was that Beyond Redemption just made all these lists of the grimmest and darkest and craziest book in the whole genre. So what was and I know that there's there's a lot the book the, the series has a lot of fans there's a lot of people clamoring for you know when when the next one's going to come out what inspired you to write this series like I know there's a lot of the names the the use of German uh, I'm not even going to attempt to say <laughs> the, uh, some of the names because I'll uh, interpret that of the uh, of the magic the type of magic based on delusions you can you can mention it in the way it's properly pronounced because I'll get it wrong. But what inspired this series? Like, what what were you thinking when you wrote such a, um, especially as as something that you know managed to get picked up by a traditional publisher that was going to be seen by a lot of people? Just something so strange and something so beyond what was really out there at the time. Yeah, it um, weirdly this actually ties back in uh, with what we were talking about earlier uh, with the the music business. Um, uh, the whole idea, the Manifest Illusions idea, uh, came while I was working as the booking agent and, and house sound guy at Clinton's uh, downtown. I actually wrote a lot of the book while ignoring Poetry Nights. I was uh, I was working with a band, a Toronto band called Dirty Penny at the time. Uh, I used to do studio recording as well as live sound. Uh, and they had this uh, song called Atahualpa. Uh, which was basically this um, semi-modern reimagining of the uh, interaction between the Incan king, or emperor, Atahualpa, and the uh, Spanish conquistador, Francisco Pizarro. And, and they sort of spun it as this clash of ideologies, and, and that sort of spawned this idea of different worldviews shaping reality. And that was the very sort of like base idea. Uh, after that, you know, I was like, okay, if... Um, 
you know, if what you believe shapes reality, who, who is going to be the powerful person in this scenario? And it occurred to me that crazy people, like completely insane, people who are capable of believing absolutely mad ideas are going to be the most powerful because they can they can kind of bend reality in the strangest ways. Awesome. And it's definitely I mean, I was talking to um, I was talking about the, the Grimdark label actually yesterday with Ed McDonald. I, I interviewed him. And one of the things we talked about was how around the time that Joe Abercrombie started and then you had Mark Lauren, you know, with Prince of Thorns and, and, and stuff like that. The term Grimdark was almost a, a category that was touted by people that people were really into. And as things have kind of progressed, it's become a movement. People have kind of shifted away from labeling things and brought about more of, I guess, a, a hybrid between the characteristics of grimdark and more standard fantasy but especially with this series i mean i've read both the books the characters are really hard to like in any way shape or form yet they're so fascinating that you can't help but like and, and again a lot of this comes out of you know mentally where i was at the time uh you know i'd been doing i've been in the music business for i don't know 15 years or so well that'll make you mental yeah, exactly. I'd, <laughs> I'd done sound for upwards of 10,000 bands live, and I, I was kind of losing it a little bit. And I had this this sort of like idea that people don't learn, people don't change, they don't change their mind, they don't grow, they don't improve. You take a shitty person, no matter what you say to them, at the end of the day, they're still a shitty person. My opinions on that have changed somewhat. Uh, but for me, that's where Beyond Redemption came from. Uh, I had the title long before I actually wrote the first word. I, I wanted to write a dark fantasy book because I had no idea what Grimdark was. I wanted to write a dark fantasy book where, you know, there's no hero. The characters aren't all pretty. They don't have great hair and rippling abs. And at the end, I wanted them to have learned nothing and still be the same shitty people they were at the beginning. Right. Totally what you get. Now, so you started off on Harper Voyager and the second book came out. You self-published the second book. So is, is was there a reason why you decided to, to not complete the series and jump into Because you've written, like, you've been very prolific as a writer over the past little while. And you've, you were working on two series at the same time, and as well as standalones that are outside of fantasy with Millennial Manifesto. And then you put out, a, like, a compilation anthology as well. So what made you sort of drift away from finishing the series that so many people knew you for and were obsessed with. Yeah, so Harper Voyager bought Reed uh, Beyond Redemption as a as a standalone. And the idea was if it sells well, there will be interest in book two. And much as sort of the book as Beyond Redemption was critically acclaimed, sales weren't all that great. And so when I sort of came to them with the with the sequel, uh, The Mirror's Truth, they they decided there wasn't enough interest to warrant investing in a sequel, uh, which, you know, fair enough. It, the first book wasn't selling. Uh, so I decided to self-publish the sequel because I'd already written that. Another Manifest Illusions book, Form and Steel, ended up going with a Skyhorse. I stopped writing in that world afterward because, uh, for me, it was very much tied up with like feelings of failure. Seeing all those those crazy reviews for Beyond Redemption and all the best of lists it was landing on, I really thought that I was going to be sort of a a writer. Uh, and make my living as a writer. And, you know, that wasn't going to be the case for, for a long time. So it was really just tied with depression. I just didn't want to write in that world anymore. Wanted to sort of set it aside. Uh, it's only now that it's sort of many years later that I'm actually back in there and finally writing the last book. Awesome. And and so Swarm and Steel is, is um, I actually, that's that's one I haven't gotten to yet. Now, it's that set in the same world, but it's based on different characters, and it's not an official sequel to um, to the first two books, correct? Yeah, correct. It's a standalone, all on its own, um, totally unrelated to the other two books. 
Okay, cool. So I want to get into your other work because I've been reading um I've been reading a lot of it lately. So I've been enjoying Obsidian Pass and I've been I've been enjoying City of Sacrifice, both very, very different but but awesome in their own in their own ways. So you've experienced the the, the kind of hybrid you've had the hybrid experience of you've experienced being on a big publisher like Harper Voyager. And then you've also experienced the world of, of indie publishing and self-publishing, which I also mentioned to Ed yesterday, kind of saying how, especially in fantasy and sci-fi, I've noticed that there's kind of like, uh, like the authors, whether they're, they're, whether they're signed or whether to, to a traditional publisher or whether they're putting out their own stuff, if they're writing in similar genres, it's like kind of a unit, like people kind of know each other and they stick together and stuff like that. Which experience have you enjoyed more? Um, or, or what are some of the things, I guess I should say, that have enamored you to the indie self-publishing world? And, and what did you really enjoy about the traditional world? publishing that's tricky see uh, when beyond redemption came out i i didn't know anyone i i had no idea what i was doing i was i was sort of laboring under uh, a pile of misconceptions back then i thought you sign a book with a big publisher and then you just start writing the next book it didn't really occur to me to sort of a try and publicize it myself a lot i thought that was their job that's just not the way the industry works anymore so i I mean, gotta say, the best thing with the, uh, the big publisher is the advance. That's great. Everyone loves that. Uh, having people do the editing, also very cool. Uh, on the indie side, I love the control. Everything is up to me. I decide on the art, I hire the artist, uh, the editing, I hire the editor. Every step of the way, if the book sucks, it's my fault. Uh, if it looks bad, it's my fault. But, uh, if it looks good, that's also my fault. And so I love that. On, on the community side, I think there used to be more of a divide between the indie and the traditional authors. That really seems to be fading. I, I, I see a lot of, you know, camaraderie, which was less true, I think, a couple of years ago. Yeah, I mean, and, and you can look at it like there are indies, especially the indies, there's the, you know, prolific indies and, you know, indies that, that start to, you know, get known for rolling out, you know, a lot of quality material that, you know, sit really high in the rankings on Amazon and just, just clean up selling books. You know, and there's people signed to traditional publishers that, you know, are lucky if they actually get one copy of their book in a bookstore. And if you check out their rankings, they're kind of floundering. So, you know, when it comes from a financial standpoint, you know, indies can kill it these days. And you can if you if you can learn the system and you can learn the science of it and the math of it and the art of it and, and you know, be able to uh, attract um, a readership, you can do incredibly well as an indie. Yeah, it's yeah. It's a strange, strange thing. Um, yeah, I mean, you're right. Like a lot of tra- traditional authors still working day jobs. And there are some indie authors who don't work day jobs anymore. Uh, for myself, like I, I'm just, I'm not good at the business thing. It's never been interesting. And so I don't do it. I don't advertise. I'm not doing Amazon ads. I don't do Facebook ads or any of that shit. So book sales for me are entirely word of mouth. It's entirely about people, you know, enjoying the books and then talking about them. And so, you know, it's you can you can do this and be a complete idiot like myself. It's apparently possible. The work is really good and, and the, the writing is excellent. And uh, and the, the the books are compelling. Like I want to talk a little bit about it's a lot to talk about. I'm going to I'm going to basically give you the floor to kind of um, summarize the overall uh, gist of, of the two series that you kind of were working on um, symbiotically, those being Obsidian Path and City of Sacrifice. Now, you mentioned that the uh, that Blackstone Heart was, was actually the first book you attempted to write, but then you shelved in favor of, of something else. I was not aware of that. I assumed it was just a new project, but you've completed that series. I mentioned 
that to you when I started reading it. And I, I said it was it was the beginning of that series was just like really, really disturbing. And I, I'm not sure if you were joking or not, but you said it was actually that series was originally going to be your attempt at trying to write something that was more YA. <laughs> yeah, it was. I, I think I, I just have no idea what I'm doing. Um, yeah. So Blackstone Heart, the Obsidian Path, the first book. Um, I sat down to write a sort of YA fantasy novel was my idea. Uh, and I, I thought it was. Uh, and then my, uh, my test readers, my first readers came back to me with this sort of appalled look saying, no, 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 no. That is, this is not YA. You can't try and sell it like that. Um, you know, it's dark fantasy or grim dark, whatever you want to call it. But yeah, I, I genuinely thought I'd written a YA novel. I was, I was just wrong. Well, one thing I can say about Blackstone Heart, uh, about the series, is that despite the fact that it starts out in such an incredibly dark and disturbing uh, way, and people that read the first five pages of it, it's like people are either going to stick with it or they're going to be like, oh, this is disgusting, I can't read this. <laughs> but if they do stick with it, one of the things that they'll realize very quickly is that it, you know it's first person, and it does incorporate a lot of elements of more classic fantasy, including, you know, some real romance and some, some characters that are that actually that do have redeemable traits and are actually quite likable, uh, despite their beginnings and despite some of the hardships that they're going through that have kind of made them who they are. There are times where you kind of lose that whole idea and you just, you know, compared to the, the characters in Manifest Illusions, they're quite likable. And that's actually something that I noticed in uh, City, of, uh, City of Sacrifice as well, is that, um, sure, there's a lot of weird, crazy, dark, nutty things that go on. And, you know, it's they're still indicative of some of the stuff that you wrote before, you know, like Ghosts of Tomorrow and Manifest Illusions. But there's also characters that can actually be seen as, as you know, relatively heroic and uh, there's a lot of endearing moments in the books. Is that something that you were going for as you went forward uh, to bring a level of, um, I guess, sentimentality and, and uh, endearing nature to your characters that you didn't have in, in the earlier books? Yeah, it was, I mean, not quite um, a conscious decision. Uh, so for me, often what I do when I'm writing is I, I build the world first. Uh, I work on the magic system and then I think about the society and stuff and really the characters and the plot, the story fall out of that initial work. You know, it's less about me sitting down and going, Oh, it's going to be a story about the kidnapping that, that doesn't really happen. It very organically comes out of, out of the world that I've thrown these people in the characters. Um, and they're, the characters are sort of like the last step before plot. And I just, uh, you know, each book, I want to tell a different story. I want different characters. I want to explore some, you know, some different ideas. And so, yeah, I mean, each, each one is going to be different, hopefully. Uh, you know, you'll see some, I've got some, I guess, obsessions that creep into, uh, everything. Uh, I think part of it is the way I look at magic. Uh, I see it mostly in terms of manipulating reality rather than as some separate thing. So every time you look at one of my magic systems, it's it's really the, the initial question is, how are they manipulating reality to bend it to whatever they want? And a, a lot of the story and what follows falls out of that, if that makes any sense. Yeah, no, it totally does. So, I mean, I was going to ask uh, how much of yourself you put into your characters and you put into your stories. I think you kind of already answered that, at least in terms of manifest illusion, you know, where a lot of those things were coming from. Like, I know you've, you've mentioned that you put a lot of your worldviews and your, your, you know, your concepts and philosophies into your books. Have you ever written a character that really you kind of think is like you? Uh, and do you ever use like 
the people you know in your personal life as characters? Uh, I, I never use people from real life as characters, with one exception, but we'll ignore him. Uh, a, soci- a sociopath I knew way back in the day from, you know, the music days. Uh, he played a huge part in uh, Beyond Redemption. I once, one time I wrote myself into uh, one of the Manifest Illusions books. I think it was The Mirror's Truth. Uh, there was a character who was delusional, who thought, the world was a dream of his and that he made it all up. I later cut it because the scene is awful. Never made it to the final book. The reason I asked that question is because I started writing. I guess I started writing around the time that COVID hit. I write with a co-writer. And our whole concept, I guess, is the idea that our characters find out that they're characters in a story that are being manipulated by us, basically, like as we're actually, my, my co-writer and I become characters in the story, and you find this out like kind of midway through the second book, and it becomes this whole big thing called the storyverse, and they're satirical and stuff like that, but I find it very difficult as a writer to break away from what I know, to break away from including myself. Like, I tried to write a book from a female character's perspective, from like a female POV, and I, I found I had a really difficult time with it. So I've, all, I've asked a lot of people that have, you know, especially male writers that have written amazing female POV stories, how they got into that and what their experiences were. Like um, Ed with, I don't know if you've read Daughter of Red Winter yet, but he did a really good job getting into the mind of, of that 17-year-old female character. Yeah, I, that one I haven't read. I read his earlier stuff, though. Uh, I mean, for me, I... You know, if I was trying to write myself, I would just lie about everything and make myself a character and then make it all up. In terms of writing female characters, I, I have no idea if I do it well. My approach is kind of to ignore the fact that they're female and just write a character. And often what I do is um, I'll write the book and then at the end I'll go through and gender flip several characters just to see how it changes relationships. Just so, you know, when the reader reading the final version, they have no idea that X character was actually a female or a male in the, in the original draft. Uh, and it's it's neat. It's fun. It's a it's a cool way to sort of see how, uh, you know, catch yourself out on um, falling into stereotypes or cliches. Works well. It's a lot of work, though. I would imagine. So a few more questions. I'd like to, uh, this is going to kind of be kind of an all-encompassing one. I'm going to ask a couple of questions at once. One being, what were some of the influences and I want to let's let's talk actual writing um, as opposed to, um, you know, things like TV and movies and stuff like that. Like, who were some of the big ones for you that either and they don't have to be old writers. They can also be writers that you're currently reading that have inspired you to to keep going or to to build on what you're already doing. But that have been a big uh, influence on on what you've done with your craft. Yeah, the single biggest influence on on what I'm doing it would be uh, Michael Moorcock and his uh, Stormbringer books, uh, Elric. Uh, the Obsidian Path is basically like a love poem to Stormbringer. More recently, Anna Smith Sparks' work, The um, Empires of Dust, is insane. She is so ridiculously talented; it's amazing. Her 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 voice like infects me, and I find myself trying to write like her for weeks afterwards until I kind of rediscover my own voice. I keep wanting to say death, 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 death. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I um, I love that series. Like right after I read Court of Broken Knives, I messaged her and I said that, that Talia was probably one of my favorite, you know, female, I don't know if you want to call her a protagonist, shade of gray, but one of my favorite characters that I've ever read. Like there was just so much tragedy and, and gut-wrenching heartbreak. And like I was, 
I was really blown away by that series, and I'm I'm stoked to see what she does next. It's been such a long time. Yeah, I, I love that Anna does not give a fuck what you think is going to happen. You think one person's going to be the hero, or it's going to turn out in a certain way, and she just does not care. Yeah, I've known you were. I think I've seen you guys have done some interviews together too, haven't you? Yep. Yeah, we've done some interviews, and we wrote a sort of a long serial piece for a Grimdark magazine that might be out later this year or early next year. Oh, I'd love to read that, so definitely keep me posted. And the other question I, I meant to ask as part of the first one, but it, it went past me, is some books that you've read this year. Um, let's stick to the, the, the genres, fantasy, sci-fi, that kind of thing, that uh, you would recommend uh, newer work, I guess, that's out there that you would recommend to our community? Uh, okay, so Master Assassins by Robert V.S. Reddick. I read that earlier this year. His prose is amazing. I love the way he writes. Clayton Snyder has a book coming out uh, that I beta read for him called Blackthorn. Awesome, very strange blend of necromancy and uh, biopunk. Uh, really cool book. John Horner Jacobs... A Lush and Seething Hell, which is sort of like two novellas, but not quite fantasy, but bordering on fantasy, just gorgeously written. Oh, uh, Legacy of the Brightwash by Crystal Matar. Holy shit, is that book good? Awesome. Well, I'll definitely make sure that uh, people check them out. And when I post this, I'll leave those links, drop some of those links so people can check out. We always want to, you know, get people reading stuff that they might not necessarily turn to. They didn't know about it. So that's definitely helpful. Okay, so what's next for you? Kind of the thing that everybody is going to want to know. It's like I find with interviews with authors, that can almost be the only question. It's the question that everybody's waiting for. What can people expect from you in the next couple of years, output-wise? So I just finished the first book. Uh, I'm not sure what the series is called. The book looks like it'll be called uh, The Storm Beneath the World. It's a non-human fantasy. Uh, I had this idea where I was going to write a fantasy novel for aliens. So it takes place in the upper reaches of a uh, gas giant planet, uh, just because why do anything easy? Uh, so that just yesterday went to my uh, first readers. Finishing up the Last Manifest Delusions novel should be out early next year. Got to write the last City of Sacrifice book. Starting the first book in the next Obsidian Path trilogy, probably in a month or two. And then, fuck, I don't know. A, a, a bunch. Are you, uh, and is the plan to, to just stick with the self-publishing, or are you pitching any of this stuff? Uh, I'm going to pitch the uh, the Storm Beneath the World, see if there's any industry interest in that. And uh, if not, I'll self, self-publish it, because it uh, seems to be getting good reactions so far. Mostly. We'll see. Awesome. So I like to end all my interviews with this question. I think that you would probably um, have some trusting guidance for people that are getting into writing or have been or want to get into writing, I guess I should say. What one piece of advice can you offer to new and aspiring writers that would help them? Uh, crap. Uh, I mean, the joke answer is marry somebody with a good job. Um, <laughs> totally. You know, it, it's finished the book. Too many people spend months or years world building, planning out all this extra little shit, great tale, reading all these books about how to write books. Like, don't, don't, you don't need any of that shit. You got to put your ass in a chair, crank out a shitty first draft. Later, maybe you can make it less shitty. But if you don't actually write the book, if you don't actually finish the book, then it ain't going to happen for you. Yeah. And another thing that that's, that's something I would say, you know, and, uh, 
One thing I'll add to that is to not have astronomical expectations and judge yourselves by the type of people that can write 12 books a year. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, that's I I might manage two. Right. Um, Which is still amazing. I mean, you know what I mean? Two is me cranking away like a crazy person. But, yeah, expect to be poor for a really long time. I mean, my co-writer, I write with a co-writer. I'm, I'm more of like a joke guy and outliner and, and, and stuff like that. He can write like 12 to, he put out like, and they're good, really good. Like it's like a 12 book series in one year. And, and a lot of people that I speak to are like, well, you know, James can write 12 books a year. Why am I struggling, struggling to write like one book in two years? Yeah. You know? And the answer is, you know, you do you. There's nothing, there's no wrong. You know, he's a machine. Like he's, he's, I, say like he's barely human like how can anyone hold themselves to a standard you know in the traditional publishing world like they wouldn't let you put out i mean now sometimes orbit i guess lets people put out like i know when rj when rj barker started out and there's some of those authors were putting out you know a book every quarter or something like that because they were kind of like testing out their series and stuff but on on the average traditional realm it's like you, you get to put out a book one one book a year maybe kind of thing yeah so totally excellent advice. Write the book and you do you. As corny as that sounds. Mike, where can people find you online if they want to discover your work and delve into your messed up worlds? Uh, so uh, there's a website, much ignored, uh, michaelrfletcher.com. You can find me on Twitter at uh, FletcherMR, um, I think. Uh, Michael R. Fletcher on Facebook. Hey, a little bit of search and you'll find me. I'm I'm pretty easy to find. Awesome. Well, it was great talking to you outside of asking you to give me a weekend at Clinton's. <laughs> um, and uh, this was a lot more fun and a lot more laid back. Best of luck with everything you've got coming out. It sounds awesome. I'm definitely going to be asking you uh, if I can beta read that new one that you just told me about. So get ready for that tech. Yeah. Um, and uh and yeah, um, looking forward to reading it all. And I hope more people discover your work from listening to this. Cool. Have a great yeah, one. And thanks for having me on, man. Absolutely. Hopefully we'll do it again t- sometime soon. Cheers. Cheers. This has been Authors in Focus. You can find my satirical fantasy novels on Amazon. Need help finding readers? Connect with me on Facebook in the Fantasy Sci-Fi Focus group or at authorsinfocus at gmail.com. You can find more episodes of this podcast at fantasy-focus.com and where your favorite podcasts are hosted. Mm-hmm.